This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. November 1983. Two inconspicuous women sat waiting in the lobby of the Miami Airport Marriott. Despite their innocuous appearance, the two women weren't there to enjoy a vacation in South Beach. They were there to complete a drug deal. The two women had $52,000 worth of cocaine stuffed into their handbags and access to far more. Along with a third accomplice, Rosie Ruiz, they formed a small-scale all-women cocaine operation, and they were about to complete one of the biggest sales of their brief drug-dealing career. The buyer arrived at the hotel, greeted the two women, and invited them up to his room so they could speak more discreetly. Once in private, the women showed the buyer the drugs, and negotiations began. The buyer was happy with what they had, but wanted more, a lot more. He wanted to buy two kilograms of cocaine, which had a street value of nearly half a million dollars. The women eagerly agreed. They could easily get two kilograms worth. They sealed the deal with a handshake. Once an agreement was in place, the buyer offered them a sympathetic smile before informing the women that they were under arrest. He was an undercover cop. The entire drug deal was a setup. 70 miles away, Ruiz sat by the phone, impatient. It had been too long since her friends made contact. Something must have gone wrong. Just as Ruiz was beginning to panic, she received a call from one of her accomplices. They'd been arrested, and the cops were coming for Ruiz, too. She had moved back to Florida to get her life back together, but it was all suddenly at risk of falling apart yet again. Ruiz didn't know whether to turn herself into the police, wait it out, or flee. Only one thing was for sure. Ruiz was a long way away from the Boston Marathon victory podium. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
This is our second episode on Rosie Ruiz, who came out of nowhere to win the 1980 Boston Marathon, only for it to be revealed that she won the race by cheating. Last week, we explored Ruiz's beginnings and how a few white lies allowed her to win the Boston Marathon. This week, we'll cover the fallout of the cheating scandal and how Ruiz struggled to get her life together afterward. On Monday, April 21st, 1980, 26-year-old administrative assistant Rosie Ruiz won the Boston Marathon, one of the oldest and most prestigious running competitions in the world. Not only did she place first, she set a new American Marathon record for women in the process. In only her second ever marathon run, Ruiz beat out established runners and past champions to win the race. Other runners and reporters were shocked as they watched Ruiz take her place on the winner's stage and receive a gold medal. But the truth was that Rosie Ruiz hadn't run the race at all. She'd cheated, taken a shortcut, and lied on her way to victory. But her story hadn't been quite convincing enough. It wasn't long before everyone around her became skeptical of her accomplishment. The male winner, Bill Rogers, could tell instantly that Rosie Ruiz hadn't run the race and told the race director his suspicions. Reporter and former marathon runner Catherine Switzer felt the same way. Especially after interviewing Ruiz and discovering that the supposed winner had nearly no knowledge of running technique. In response to the accusation, the Boston Athletic Association began an investigation into Ruiz. Piling on, the New York Marathon launched their own inquiry into Ruiz's 23rd place finish five months earlier. On Wednesday, April 23rd, two days after the marathon, the suspicion erupted into a full-blown scandal. Two Harvard students revealed that they saw Ruiz jump into the race in its last mile. The day after newspapers published the Harvard student's eyewitness account, public opinion quickly turned on Ruiz. Her reputation was in freefall. Later that same day, another eyewitness came forward, Susan Morrow, a Manhattan-based clothing designer who had ridden the subway with Rosie Ruiz to the finish line of the New York Marathon. Morrow conclusively identified Ruiz as the woman she'd seen on the subway. Even her closest ally, local running club president Steve Merrick, remarked to reporters that he wasn't sure if Ruiz had fully run either the New York or Boston marathons. Damningly, Merrick also added that if it was proven that Ruiz didn't run the New York race, then there was no way she ran the one in Boston. Rosie Ruiz was running out of allies. Yet despite his own public doubts, Merrick still agreed to help Ruiz because no one else would. The two of them held another press conference on April 24th to address the new allegations. Ruiz angrily faced down a crowd of skeptical reporters and once again denied that she'd cheated. She declared that she would ultimately be proven innocent and that the skepticism was only based around the fact that she was an unknown. If no one remembered her racing alongside them, it was simply because they didn't recognize her. Going further, Ruiz took the opportunity to blast the unfair treatment that she and other women runners faced in terms of race organization and press coverage. 
She also argued that, whether proven guilty or not, the controversy around her marathon win might have the effect of increasing coverage of female runners in general. As the reporter's questions escalated in volume, tears ran down Ruiz's face. Steve Merrick placed his hand on her shoulder as she gripped the podium shakily and lamented the fact that she was only able to enjoy her own marathon victory for a moment before the controversy began. Ruiz's emotional breakdown was met with further skepticism from reporters and derision from other runners who had little sympathy for a cheater. Even as she passionately defended herself, things were getting worse for Ruiz. Although the investigation was still not yet complete, the New York Marathon race organizer, Fred Lebo, told reporters that he was convinced that Rosie Ruiz had not run either marathon. A decision on her disqualification was imminent. The Boston Athletic Association announced that a decision on Ruiz's victory would be handed down by the end of the week. All signs pointed to the victory being voided. Jacqueline Guerreau, famed Canadian runner and second-place finisher in the Boston Marathon, flew back down from Canada to Massachusetts on Thursday. She expected to be retroactively crowned the marathon winner on Friday and was scheduled for a celebratory interview on local TV. That night, race director Will Cloney had a decision to make. The investigation was entirely in his hands. While he felt as though he had enough evidence to convincingly say that Ruiz didn't run the race, it wasn't quite as conclusive as he would have liked. Drawing from his past career as a military lawyer, Cloney didn't feel comfortable with a case that wasn't a slam dunk. So he decided to hold off on presenting the evidence to the Board of Governors of the Boston Athletic Association until he had a report from the official race photographers who were poring over tens of thousands of race photographs. If, by some bizarre circumstance, Ruiz actually had run the race, the report from the photographers might finally offer some evidence of that. If she hadn't, their report would be the final nail in the coffin against her. Late on Thursday night, New York Marathon race director Fred Lebo called Cloney and offered to take him off the hook by first disqualifying Ruiz from the New York race. Being disqualified from New York would retroactively make Ruiz ineligible to run in Boston, thus taking away the victory without Cloney needing to prove that she had cheated. Cloney refused the New York director's offer. He wanted to have conclusive proof and make a strong decision for the good of the race and the sport. Early Friday morning, Cloney announced that no decision would come until Monday. A frustrated and angry Jacqueline Garreau once again flew back to Canada. To replace her in the studio, the local TV channel invited Rosie Ruiz. Once again, Ruiz took Garreau's rightful place in the spotlight. A hopeful Rosie Ruiz traveled back to Boston on Friday morning, with Steve Merrick still at her side. Cloney's announcement had given her a sense of optimism she hadn't felt since winning the race itself. It was possible that she'd be exonerated and her victory could stand. In front of the bright studio lights and TV cameras, Ruiz once again pleaded her case. She casually offered to take a lie detector test though she also hedged her bets by saying a polygraph wouldn't prove anything concrete. One of the TV hosts asked Ruiz directly if she truly thought she actually ran the race, 
or if she had any doubts. Ruiz confidently answered that she had no doubts. She then announced that she would prove her own running ability by participating in a 10K in New York City three months later in July, organized by Steve Merrick. On Friday night, news came in from New York City. The director of the New York Marathon announced that thorough examination of the video evidence concluded that Ruiz had not run the marathon. Her victory was therefore officially voided. While the voided finish in New York technically disqualified Ruiz from the Boston Marathon, the Boston Athletic Association made no official announcement either way on Friday night. This was an unprecedented situation, and there were no strict disqualification rules between the New York and Boston marathons. Steve Merrick returned to New York, leaving Ruiz alone in Boston. She stayed alone in her hotel room through the weekend, anxiously awaiting a ruling from the Boston Athletic Association. On Sunday, Will Cloney received his report from the official race photographers. They had examined over 10,000 photographs taken at a checkpoint a mile before the finish line and discovered no evidence that Ruiz ever passed it. It was the nail in the coffin he needed. On Monday morning, Ruiz received a phone call from Cloney who wanted to meet her a second time. This time, he came bearing news. It was time for Rosie Ruiz to face the music. When we come back, the investigations of Rosie Ruiz come to a close. Now, back to the story. It had only been one week since 26-year-old Rosie Ruiz had shocked the world by winning the Boston Marathon. But those seven days had felt like a lifetime to Ruiz, who faced immediate scrutiny from reporters, fans, and other runners who believed, correctly, that Ruiz had cheated. On the evening of April 28, 1980, Ruiz met with Boston Marathon race director Will Cloney at her hotel. Cloney told Ruiz that he was ready to bring evidence to the Board of Governors for a vote on her victory. He didn't mince words. They would likely vote to disqualify her and name Jacqueline Garreau the winner. Ruiz reportedly sobbed. Cloney felt sorry for her and tried to be comforting as he delivered the bad news. Despite all the facts against her, Ruiz still wouldn't admit she'd cheated. He gave her one last chance to provide any evidence that would support her story. She gave Cloney the information of one other male runner whom she said could vouch for her. Cloney knew who the male runner was. He was the overall 10th place finisher, finishing the race 130 places earlier than Ruiz. He wouldn't have been physically near her at any point during the marathon. As kindly as he could, Cloney told Ruiz that this final defense wouldn't help her. She was heartbroken, but realized there was no way she could stop the inevitable. On Wednesday, April 30th, Will Cloney held a press conference in downtown Boston. He announced that the Board of Governors had voted unanimously to strip Rosie Ruiz of her Boston Marathon win. He stated that the evidence showed, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Ruiz did not run the entire race. Seated to Cloney's right was a jet-legged Jacqueline Garreau, who had yet again made the trip to Boston. This time, she was finally given what she earned nine days before, the title of Boston Marathon Champion. 
Cloney placed the laurel wreath on Garot's head as members of the press clapped. Garot smiled and gave a half-hearted fist pump to celebrate her late victory. Back in New York, Rosie Ruiz delivered a downtrodden statement to reporters, once again weakly claiming that she'd been wrongly disqualified and that one day she would prove it. With the investigation over and the scandal winding down, Will Cloney traveled to New York to meet with Ruiz a third and final time at her apartment. She continued arguing that she'd run the race, but Cloney stopped her. She'd already been disqualified. There was no more need for Ruiz to defend herself. He was there to simply offer an olive branch. He invited her to run the Boston Marathon again in 1981. Maybe in a year, she could prove that she really was the elite runner she claimed to be. Cloney did ask for one thing. He wanted Ruiz's medal back to award it to the rightful winner. A devastated Ruiz refused. She repeated that she'd run the race and earned that medal. Cloney was shocked. Despite all that had been revealed, Ruiz truly believed it was rightfully hers. Not wanting to force more conflict, Cloney let her keep it. Ruiz returned to work later that week, hoping that the controversy was over and she could move on with her life. Instead, her boss called her into his office. He felt betrayed. He had supported Ruiz, paid for her trip to Boston, and even defended her to the press. Now, she'd proven herself a liar. For those reasons, Ruiz was fired. In less than two weeks of misfortune, Rosie Ruiz had lost everything. Her marathon win, her job, and her reputation. Wherever she went in New York City, she was reminded of her own failures. Almost instantly, joke t-shirts for the Rosie Ruiz fan club, decorated with subway tokens, became popular in New York and Boston. Her name became synonymous with cheating. To pull a Rosie Ruiz entered the cultural lexicon. Ruiz tried to ignore it as best she could and pull her life back together. She got a job as a bookkeeper at Richard Stevens Incorporated, a Manhattan-based real estate firm, and stayed out of the public eye. In the winter of 1980, eight months after her disqualification, Steve Merrick visited Ruiz to catch up and check in on her. Their conversation drifted to the events of the Boston Marathon. Merrick remarked flat out that Ruiz clearly didn't run the marathon. Much to his surprise, she didn't defend herself. Instead, she simply replied that she didn't need to tell Merrick the truth, because he already knew. According to Merrick, Ruiz told him that she never intended to win the marathon. She'd only wanted to finish with a good enough time to impress her boss and co-workers back in New York. She'd simply failed to notice that the first woman hadn't crossed the finish line yet and jumped into the race too early. A year later, the 1981 Boston Marathon was held without incident, and Rosie Ruiz was nowhere to be seen. She didn't take Will Cloney up on his offer to run again. In fact, Ruiz never again competed in an organized race. Her career as a long-distance runner was behind her. Her career as a liar, however, was far from over. 
As Ruiz got her life back on track, she still felt the inexorable pull towards ethically problematic behavior. Some reporters viewed Ruiz's behavior as sociopathic. She didn't follow the rules because she didn't really see them. Through some combination of intelligence, charisma, and ambition, Ruiz always felt like she could get away with anything. Her new job offered her new opportunities to take advantage of. Rosie Ruiz's responsibilities as a bookkeeper for a real estate firm included personally dealing with the company's finances, cashing checks, and depositing funds. Tens of thousands of dollars passed through her hands every week. It wasn't long before she started skimming off the top. At first, she took small amounts from the cash she was given to deposit at the bank. Eventually, she stopped bothering to go to the bank, keeping everything for herself. Ruiz's crimes escalated. It wasn't enough to steal cash from the company. She started forging checks to supplement her own salary. Her bosses at the firm didn't seem to notice that any money was missing, so Ruiz continued stealing more and more. It was as if she didn't see it as a crime. Like the Boston Marathon, it appeared that she saw it as taking a little shortcut to get what she deserved. And like the marathon, she could have gotten away with it if she hadn't gone a little too far. With her added income, Ruiz lived luxuriously. She rented an expensive apartment in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, took cabs to work instead of the subway, and went skiing every weekend. She took as many sick days as possible, some weeks barely showing up to the office. Her coworkers were astonished by her lifestyle. They couldn't figure out how she managed it on her meager salary. Eventually, her bosses wondered the same thing. They took a closer look at the work she'd done over the past couple of months and were shocked to discover the truth. They realized that Ruiz had stolen more than $15,000 in cash and forged over $45,000 worth of checks. On April 5th, 1982, they alerted the police, who opened a criminal investigation into Ruiz. Two weeks later, on April 19th, two plainclothes detectives knocked on Rosie Ruiz's apartment door. When she answered the door, the detectives cuffed her and informed her that she was being arrested for grand larceny and forgery. Ruiz put on a pair of large sunglasses as she was taken to the police precinct to be booked and charged. As the detectives walked her to the precinct doors, reporters pushed microphones towards her and shouted questions. Ruiz kept her head down and said nothing. Her assets were seized, her bank accounts frozen. Without any money to bail herself out, Ruiz sat in jail for a week while she awaited a resolution to her case. The evidence supplied by her bosses at the real estate firm was undeniable. Ruiz had no choice but to accept a plea deal. She pleaded guilty to the charges and received a sentence of time served plus five years probation. After receiving her sentence, Ruiz came to the realization that she couldn't start over yet again in New York City. She had burned too many bridges and couldn't take the media attention that still surrounded her. So she made two major life decisions in 1983. First, she would never talk about the Boston Marathon ever again. Second, she decided to return home to Miami, Florida and live with her family. 
She moved down south, got her real estate agent's license, and, always looking for a quick way to make an extra buck, began selling cocaine. Ruiz got to know two other women who were also looking to earn some extra income. Together, the women formed a small-scale cocaine dealing operation. Ruiz acted as middleman and broker, taking the cocaine from the supplier while her partners sold it to street-level dealers. In November of 1983, two of Ruiz's partners went to meet a buyer in the Marriott Hotel near the Miami International Airport. The plan was to sell about $52,000 worth of cocaine. Ruiz's partners met the buyer at the airport and began negotiating. The buyer wanted more than just $52,000 worth, so Ruiz's partners said they could get him as much as he wanted. They offered to sell him two kilograms of high-grade cocaine, which had a street value of nearly half a million dollars. The buyer agreed. It was going to be a massive payday for Ruiz and her partners. Except it wasn't a drug deal at all. It was a drug bust. The buyer was an undercover cop, and Ruiz's partners were immediately arrested. And the police also put out an arrest warrant for Rosie Ruiz. When she heard that her partners were in custody and the police were now looking for her, Ruiz had another important decision to make. Surrender and face criminal prosecution or run. She could potentially escape back to Cuba, where her estranged father still lived. After a week of deliberation, Ruiz decided that she was done running. She turned herself in and was charged with cocaine trafficking. A federal judge deemed Ruiz a flight risk and ordered her held without bond while her case progressed. After spending 23 days in jail, Ruiz was sentenced to three years probation. Less than a month later, in January 1984, 30-year-old Rosie Ruiz was back in a courtroom this time to get married. Her husband, Icaro Vivas, was a Colombian immigrant who arrived in Miami less than a year before. With her cocaine dealing career over, Ruiz went out looking for another job. Ironically, she was hired by the Better Business Bureau as an accreditation specialist. This time, she promised herself not to take any shortcuts. Whenever her co-workers asked about the marathon, Ruiz always denied that she was the same Rosie Ruiz who cheated her way to victory. She wanted to put the mistakes of her past as far behind her as possible. There was one exception to this self-imposed secrecy. In February of 1984, Ruiz discovered that Jacqueline Garreau was coming to Miami to run a 10K at the Orange Bowl, and Ruiz couldn't help herself. Rosie Ruiz and Jacqueline Garreau had been side by side in all the media coverage of the marathon controversy, but had never spoken face to face. Ruiz wanted to finally meet the woman she'd cheated. When we come back, Ruiz meets Jacqueline Garreau. Now back to the story. By early 1984, 30-year-old Rosie Ruiz was on a path to redemption. She was out of jail, had a new job, and had just gotten married. She was ready to put the past behind her. But she wanted one last piece of closure. She wanted to meet the woman she cheated out of the Boston Marathon win in 1980. Ruiz went to the Orange Bowl in Miami on the day of a 10K race and found Jacqueline Garreau stretching by the starting line. 
Ruiz approached with a friendly smile and introduced herself. Garo did not return Ruiz's friendliness. Instead, she bluntly asked Ruiz why she cheated in Boston. It had been over three years, but the wound was still fresh. Garo wanted answers. Ruiz had no interest in telling the truth. She repeated what she'd always said. She didn't cheat. She ran the whole race. She'd won legitimately, and she planned to run it again. Garo was surprised and insulted by Ruiz's continued dishonesty and lack of remorse. So she abruptly ended the conversation, shook her head, and walked away. Like Jacqueline Garo, the sport of long-distance running couldn't so easily move past the story of Rosie Ruiz. The Ruiz scandal was, in the words of one runner, the end of the sport's age of innocence. The beloved public aspect of marathons, the fact that a world-famous athlete like Jacqueline Garo ran on the same course at the same time as an amateur like Rosie Ruiz, was now considered a flaw in the system. In the years after Rosie Ruiz's win, the New York and Boston marathons added significant new security measures. More checkpoints, more cameras, and more scrutiny on each and every runner. Some marathons split runners into two separate races, one with elite competitive runners and one with amateurs. Eventually, races also began inserting tracking chips in the runner's shoes to make sure that no one could ever again pull a Rosie Ruiz. There were also, however, positive consequences of Ruiz's actions. As she predicted, the nonstop news coverage of the controversy made many people pay attention to women's running for the first time. Ruiz's tainted victory may have been a loss of innocence for the sport, but it also put it on the cultural map in a way that little else could. Female participation in the Boston Marathon nearly doubled in the two years after Ruiz's win, in 1984, for the Summer Games in Los Angeles, the Olympics added a women's marathon event for the first time in its history. Jacqueline Garreau competed for Canada, but didn't finish due to an injury. In the midst of all this change that she helped create, Rosie Ruiz stayed quiet in Florida, happy to remain out of the spotlight. Ruiz's life, however, remained turbulent, Ruiz's relationship with her husband, Icaro Vivas, was rocky. The two of them fought constantly. Ruiz later blamed their marital problems solely on political differences. She was liberal and he was conservative, though there were likely other issues at play. Their marriage disintegrated over the course of the next two years. In August of 1985, they separated and Ruiz moved to West Palm Beach to live with her mother. Ruiz's tendency to get into trouble followed her to her new home, getting her into conflicts with multiple landlords, three of whom sued to evict her for breaking her lease. She bounced through a series of jobs, working as a public notary, and later starting her own cleaning service with two other women. The business only lasted a couple of years, but Ruiz, of course, managed to take full advantage of every perk she could. She even managed to live rent-free at a Palm Beach cottage in exchange for her cleaning services. In 1988, 35-year-old Rosie Ruiz got a job at the Laboratory Corporation of America as a client representative. There, she met a woman named Margarita Alvarez. By the early 1990s, the two of them became romantically involved. 
1993, 40-year-old Ruiz moved into Alvarez's house in Tequesta, Florida. By the mid-90s, Rosie Ruiz found some stability in her life. In LabCorp and in Tequesta, she finally managed to stay in one place after a lifetime of constant turbulence. She raised three sons with Margarita and, beyond a handful of traffic violations, remained mostly out of trouble. Ruiz kept her Boston Marathon medal in storage because looking at it made her melancholic. Still, every year in mid-April, she watched the race. Throughout the two decades following the 1980 Boston Marathon, countless journalists attempted to find Ruiz, but none were successful in getting an interview. She'd kept her married name even after her divorce from Icaro Vivas, making it easier for her to stay hidden. In 1998, a reporter from the Palm Beach Post finally managed to track her down by talking to co-workers at LabCorp. When Ruiz heard about the reporter, she finally broke her silence, including telling her co-workers that she was, indeed, the famous Rosie Ruiz. Even with her secret out, Ruiz remained careful about how she interacted with the reporter. She refused to meet them in person and only confirmed her identity by dropping off a recent photo at a public location for the reporter to pick up later. When the reporter finally made contact over the phone, Ruiz was ready to tell her side of the story. After 18 years, as it turned out, her story hadn't changed. She still claimed that she had run the whole race and deserved the medal. Ruiz blamed the entire controversy on politics. She said the race organizers and fans wanted the favorites, like Jacqueline Garreau, to win and disqualified her because they were embarrassed that an amateur beat them. She also claimed that her later legal issues were the result of misunderstandings and bad luck. According to Ruiz, her cocaine dealing arrest was the result of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. In a typed statement that Ruiz sent to the reporter after the interview, Ruiz promised that she would run again. And this time, she vowed there would be no mistake about her abilities. After the interview in 1998, Rosie Ruiz successfully slipped back into anonymity. She refused to talk to anyone else about her past. She never did run again. Rosie died on July 8, 2019, after a 10-year battle with cancer. Her death was only reported on after journalists recognized her photo in a digital obituary published quietly on the internet. The obituary made no reference to her maiden name, nor to her brief running career. In the decades since the 1980 Boston Marathon, Jacqueline Garreau developed empathy for the struggles that Ruiz went through and ultimately forgave her. After Ruiz's death, Garreau posted a Facebook tribute calling her a great woman who made some mistakes. She thinks that the entire saga of Rosie Ruiz makes for a good lesson. That cheating will never give you satisfaction. And that it's also simply not very fun. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, 
But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 